But if you've got a Bible, turn me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We'll be in verses 1 to 8 this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you can find it on the screen behind me as we read it together. But we're in this, continuing in this series entitled Mission Critical as we look at um, the mission that God's given us as a church of making disciples and those resources that are critical to the mission that he's given us. In other words, what's indispensable for us as we pursue this mission that God's given us of disciple-making here within our community. Um, And this morning, uh, we take a look at Acts chapter 1 to learn that if we're going to make disciples, not only must we be shaped by the Word we saw a few weeks ago and humbled by prayer, but this morning we want to see we need to be empowered by the Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, listen to what Luke writes as he continues his second volume of the accounts of what God was doing in the early church. He says this, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, for Christmas, my in-laws got us a Google Home Assistant. Um, I don't know that I would ever purchase one of these for myself, but it was a gift, and so we set it up. It's there on the kitchen counter, <coughs> and it really, if you know how to work this thing, come over to my house and teach me, um, because really all it does for us is tell us what the weather's going to be, um, and my kids ask it to tell, it, tell them riddles, and so my son has worked through every riddle Google Home Assistant knows, I think, by now as he's solved and, and just been entertained by it for a little bit. But this morning, whenever I got up into the kitchen and I was fixing my concoction of medication that I'm taking, trying to stave off this cold, I noticed that the Google Home Assistant had a, just a white screen on it that said it was disconnected from the Wi-Fi, right? That it had lost signals for some reason. And so it's basically now sitting on the kitchen counter as a paperweight, as as this $150 paperweight that my in-laws gave us for Christmas. So uh, because it has no connection to the signal that's coming into it, it can do really nothing for us, right? You can put all kinds of technology in a home. Um, in fact, I was thinking about as, you build ho- as people build houses in our community, right? Um, you, can, you can fit it out in the most basic of features like economy line appliances, economy line fixtures, or you can go full bore, right, and have fixer-upper, right, they come into your house and they put all the fixtures up and they put all the the appliances in and you can have high dollar technology, smart everything, right, smart coffee makers, smart thermostats, smart garage doors, smart, right, water faucets, I'm sure there's probably smart everything, 
And you can have all of that features and fixtures installed in your home. But listen, if that home, if the builders never connect that home to the power grid, all of that, all of those fancy features and fixtures are nothing more than, than, than useless features and fixtures. If there's no connection to the power grid. And listen, the same is true in churches and in our individual lives as well. Listen, as we as a church here at Redeemer seek to be a, a gospel witness in this community where God has planted us and to the ends of the earth, listen, we can develop programs here at Redeemer. We can launch ministries here at Redeemer. We can install deacons here at Redeemer. We can raise up other elders here at Redeemer. We can have processes and systems and structures and procedures and organizational guidelines that dictate and determine how we operate here at Redeemer. But listen, if we are not connected and dependent upon the source of power that God has given for His mission, all of that will be like a home with all kinds of features and fixtures that has never been connected to the power grid. That's reality, church, that God has given power for this mission that he's called us to. What God has called us to, he's equipped us for by the giving of himself through the promised Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what our text teaches us this morning. And I'm afraid that for many people in Christian churches all across our land, right, they're... they're <laughs> They're very similar, perhaps, to the, the disciples that Paul encounters in Acts chapter 19. As he, as he rolls into Ephesus and uh, Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit whenever they came to believe, and they said, no, wait, we, we were baptized, baptized with the baptism of John. Who is this Holy Spirit? We've never heard of him. Right? And I think there are many Christians across the land, one of the most neglected teachings, particularly in Baptist and Bible churches that tend to be very conservative doctrinally, which is a good thing, but I think there's a neglect of the Holy Spirit. Neglect of the Holy Spirit, church, I want you to know that we're being negligent in our mission. We will neglect the power that God has given us to accomplish it. See, in many Bible and Baptist churches, the confessional trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the functional trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Now listen, we do not diminish the Word of God here. We hold it high. We want to yield to it, submit to what it teaches in all things. The sermon three weeks ago on being shaped by the Word, the primacy of the Word, the priority of the Word, we hold it, 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 we, we, we hold it tightly here at Redeemer. And yet, I wonder how many Christians know the Word and read the Word. And they have, they've, they've, they've all kinds of knowledge from the Word, and yet they lack power in their life because they've, because they've neglected the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as we take a look at this text together, I want us to understand, first of all, who the, who the Spirit, not what the Spirit is, but who the Spirit is. And then what we learn from this particular text about what God has given to the church for the accomplishment of His mission. Listen, so who is the Holy Spirit? Listen, the Holy Spirit 
is not some impersonal force. How many Star Wars fans we have in here, right? Like a little bit of Yoda, okay? Uh, a little bit of Luke. My, my son stumbled across these videos on the internet last um, that was bad lip reading from Star Wars. Uh, and I, I nearly, I laughed until I just cried almost at watching these videos because they're just hilarious. Uh, but I, you, if you think about the force kind of perspective in Star Wars, it's this impersonal force that kind of embodies everyone and everything. It's more like panentheism than it is like biblical Christianity, right? And so that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, all right? He is, he's not a, a, a ghost that you have to catch with a proton pack and a, and a, and a, and a trap that you slide out, right? Right? And he's also not this presence that kind of puts you down like a massive tranquilizer dart that's been shot into a big game animal and on stage you just kind of fall out everywhere. Okay? That's not what we're talking about either. All right? But the Holy Spirit is a person. It's the third person of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a, he's a person, but as a person he is the embodiment. Listen. He's the embodiment of the love the Father has for the Son and the eternal love the Son has for the Father. That is so rich and deep and dynamic that it stands out as the third person of the triune God. Listen to a couple of texts where I'm, I'm, I, I want to show you this. In John 17, 24 to 26, <coughs> Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these that you have, and, and, and these that you have, that you have sent me, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says that the love with which you loved me might come to reside and live in these to whom you have sent me and have given me as my own. Right? And then again in Romans 5, verse 5, when Paul's on the heels of talking about sufferings and what they produce in our life, he says in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We come to know the love of God, experience the love of God, taste of the love of God because the Holy Spirit's been poured into us. The love with which the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father from all eternity past has now come to take up residence in the life of every man, woman, and child who believes. Who believes? Now listen, that is power. That is power. And listen, one of the things this means for you, church, and for me, is this. Whenever you look at the greatest commandment, what did Jesus say the greatest commandment is? You love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Listen, you and I are, we, we do not, indeed we cannot love God apart from God. You with me? We will never love God apart from God. And it's not that God just in, somehow enables us in our, our own natural abilities to somehow muster up enough, right? Kind of, kind of 
lather up enough emotion to love God is what God does is he takes the love that he has for himself and he plants it in our hearts through the person of the Holy Spirit so that we're able to love God the way that God has commanded to be us to love him. Because apart from him, we cannot love him. So listen, for those of us in the room who right now, you're, you're a Christian and you feel your love for God perhaps has waned. Right? What you don't need to do is to try to lather up and muster up, right? Or whip up or kind of work yourself into a little tizzy to experience all kinds of emotions to feel for God. But you need to trust that what God has planted in your heart is sufficient because his own love abides within you. He's poured it out into your hearts through the promised Holy Spirit. The person of God has come to live within you. See, in the gospel, one of the things that we see, church, is that, what, yes, we see that the Father is for us. Not against us. He's for us. That the Son, or that the Son extends forgiveness to us and the Spirit comes to reside within us. So what that means is this, is that for those of us in the room who are Christians, who think that somehow that the gospel is only about me getting forgiveness of my sin, and that, that, that I get forgiveness of my sin now so that one day I can enjoy God in all of His fullness then and there. Right, what we've done is we've, we've kind of, what, what mm, I'm trying to think of a, a simpler word to use, I'm racking my brain. We have, we have, truncated, that's, that's the complex word I was thinking, we've diminished the fullness of the gospel. Right? Because even Jesus himself, you remember what he says to his disciples when he says, hey listen, I'm about to go away. I'm not going to be with you forever, but I'm going to send you a helper. And listen, it's better for you, he says, that I go away and that he come than for me to stay here forever. <coughs> Do we really believe that? Listen, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. There are some times in which when Steve and Stanley and I are sitting in elders meetings, I was like, man, if Jesus were just here, we'd turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you think? What should we do? Because, well, I don't know. We're praying. Or I'm sitting in, in, at home and, or at, at, at a coffee shop and I'm writing a message for the week. I'm saying, if Jesus were just sitting right here, with me, I could turn to him and say, Jesus, what does this mean? Or well, what do people need to hear? In fact, I could turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, in fact... Like, it took me four months to get through the Sermon on the Mount. It took you 18 minutes. So you could probably preach it better and faster than I could. So Jesus, why don't you just preach on Sunday? And yet Jesus himself says, it's better for you that I go and he come. Why do we believe that? Do we believe that? The person of God, not only dwelling with us, but in us. Right? Now, we look at this text in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, there's two things that I want us to see here about the Holy Spirit that's referenced. Now, there's much more that we can see across all the pages of the New Testament, but there's two things I want us to see here. First of all is this, that the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the Father's promise for renewal. <coughs> the fulfillment of the Father's promise for renewal. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus ordered the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which in this context 
considering what he says in verse 5, is the Holy Spirit with which they would be baptized not many days from then. Right? And this promise that, that, that Luke refers to as he writes about what Jesus had said to them, the promise of the Father that was given to them, this stretches all the way back into the Old Testament of a day in which God promised that His Spirit would come and be in His people, among His people, with His people. A few instances in Isaiah chapter 32. In Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 12, I'm going to read some context for you, and not just the little one verse. Alright? But in Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 12, listen to what Isaiah says about a time in which God comes to judge His people and then comes to renew them. Verse 12, Beat your breasts, he says, for the pleasant fields, for the fruit vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. He says, Beat your breast over those things, he says, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill... Mm. Cough drop, sorry. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of the wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. In other words, everything that has been built up is going to come down to ruins. These exquisite palaces are going to be the roaming places of the wild animals. And then in verse 15, he says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. God says there's going to be judgment that comes and there's going to be a desolation that, that, that you experience in which everything that's been built up is going to come to ruin until the Spirit is poured out from on high in which God would begin to then renew and restore everything that had been lost. In addition, Ezekiel chapter 36, <coughs> verses 24 and following. Ex- was sending his people into exile and yet he was promising them that they wouldn't live there forever and he says in verses 24 and following I will take you from the nations to which he had spread them and he will gather them from all the countries and bring, them in, bring you into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Remove the heart that is cold and hard and callous towards God and put a heart heart in them that is malleable and soft and tender towards God. And in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. See, and, and we, can, we can look at more in the Old Testament about places where God promises, the Father promises that there would be a day that would come in which He would restore and renew His people by the pouring out of His Spirit. Joel chapter 2 that Peter cites in Acts chapter 2 when he stands to preach at the day of Pentecost is another text. But my voice is going to go and our time is going. And so... <coughs> But it's the promise of the Father 
that we see fulfilled in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for the renewal of God's people. Second thing, and you're like, what do I do with that? Just give me a minute, and we're going to get there. Second thing that you see in this text is not only the Spirit, the fulfillment of the Father's promise for renewal, but the Spirit is the source of power for mission. The source of power for mission. In verses 6 to 8, we see the disciples, they're all tied up in knots about when the kingdom's going to be restored. In other words, Jesus, when is the fullness of your rule and reign going to come? When's it going to be realized? When are you going when, when, when to re- fully restore your, your people, the people of the nation of Israel? When are we going to re- rule and reign with you forever? And Jesus says, listen, rather than getting all tied up in knots about when those times and days are going to be that, are, that God has hidden in the, 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 the providence and sovereignty of his own wisdom, that only he knows when those things are going to transpire. He says, so don't tie yourself up in dates and times and flow lines and charts. He says, but rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What you should be tied up in knots about is this mission of witnessing about me starting in your own local neighborhoods here in Jerusalem, then extending out to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what you see happening in the book of Acts as Acts drives forward, right? But listen, what... It's so interesting here because it, we're reminded of the fact that in, in verses 4 and 5, the disciples are told to stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. But Jesus told them that back in Luke 24 as well, in the first volume. In Luke 24, listen to what he says in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, Jesus says, you cannot fulfill the mission of witnessing about my works and my deeds and calling people to repentance in my name until the promised Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. So don't try to set out on this thing in your own power, under your own strength, by your own abilities, with your own expertise. (coughs) But wait for the Spirit. Now, in Luke's Gospel too, one of the things that we see, I, I, there's a lot of Bible, I know, and that's a good thing. I told you, we, we're not just going to go based on my feelings, all right? But in Luke's Gospel, one of the things you see is that even the very Son of God Himself was submitted to the Holy Spirit in His incarnation. See, there are many of us who think that Jesus fulfilled his mission of course he fulfilled his mission he's the son of God he's God incarnate and yet Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that he though being a very nature God and not considered equality God's something to be grasped but he emptied himself right and became like us and being like us in order to fulfill his mission there 
the knee bent to the Spirit. He had to yield to the Spirit's promptings. He showed us what true humanity was to look like as he was empowered by the Spirit and yielded the Spirit under the control of the Spirit. In fact, you see the Holy Spirit showing up in these significant marks throughout Luke's gospel in Jesus' life and ministry. In Luke 1, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. In Luke 3, the Spirit falls upon him like a dove at his baptism. In Luke 4, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. Right? So and he's, we're told in Luke chapter 4 that he was full of the Spirit. And he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So before Jesus ever public ministry in Luke's gospel, the Spirit fills him, empowers him, and propels him on his mission. <coughs> the very Son of God himself needed to be yielded to the Holy Spirit to fulfill his mission. How much more so does his people need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit as the source of power for theirs. And this is exactly what you find in the book of Acts. A little more Bible for you. I promise we're going to get to application. Some of you just need to buckle up, right? And keep, keep rolling with us. Right? He's also the source of the life of the early church. Listen, in the book of Acts, Luke refers to the Spirit some 57 times in the book of Acts. Giving the Spirit a prominent role in the advancement of the early church. Church, let me give you, I just got six of these. All right, not all 57, just six. When Peter's on trial in Acts 4 for healing a lame man, verse 8 says that before he responds to his accusers, we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, thus confirming the promise that Jesus has made to his disciples in Luke 12, 12, that whenever they were on trial for their faith, that the Holy Spirit would give them words to speak. In Acts 7, we're told that Stephen, the first martyr in the early church, as he was being stoned to death, that he gazed into heaven full of the Holy Spirit and continued to cling fast to his confession. In Acts 8, it's the Spirit who prompts Philip to go over and join the Ethiopian on his chariot and explain to him what he was reading in the scroll from Isaiah and point him to Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, when Ananias lays his hands on Saul, who would later be known as Paul, he says that Jesus has sent him to Saul that he might recover his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, Peter was preaching in Caesarea at the house of a man named Cornelius where a bunch of Gentiles had gathered. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who believed the word and the Jews who were accompanying Peter were amazed that God would pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit even upon the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, as the church in Antioch was in worship and prayer, the Holy Spirit said to them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. Over and over again in the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit driving the mission of the church forward towards the ends of the earth. So not only is the promised Spirit the fulfillment of God's promise, but He's also the source of power for this mission that we have been given. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. And yet, I'm afraid 
that for many, their lives, their lives look like spiritually Amish people. Right? The Amish are some interesting folks. Okay? Right? You go up into the Pennsylvania countryside and you find them out there in the fields and they are tending the fields. They are working the crops. Right? They are churning butter. They're making their clothes. They're sowing. Right? They're planting and watering and harvesting. And they're doing everything outside of the confines of modern technology and electricity. Right? And so they don't have track. There's no big John Deere's up there. Okay? Right? No big green and yellow tractors. Right? They have big farming implements attached to the back of them, pulling alongside the, tearing up the fallow ground. They've got, they've got oxen, and they've got donkey, and they've got horses, and they've got cattle, and they've got these wooden implements with these steel blades turning the ground over, casting seed out by hand. Right? Sewing their own clothes by hand. No electricity. No technology. And they're still surviving. Right? They're still making it, but the work that they're engaged in is much harder than it but perhaps has to be because they fail to avail themselves of the power that is accessible to them. And I'm afraid that many Christians' lives are the same. It is not that, that listen, I, let me be very clear. We are not the church that says, when you come to faith in Jesus, you get a little bit to wait for the second baptism to come and then when all the fullness of the Spirit gets poured out on you. We're not a second baptism church. Right? We believe you receive the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into Him at conversion. But there are moments in life in which the Spirit fills us. In fact, we're going to talk about that here in a moment. Empowers us for ministry that we had not been engaged in before. There is an intensification of our experience of the Spirit at moments throughout our life as He both renews us personally, as was the promise of the Father to His people for renewal through the Spirit, but also the intensification of the Spirit for the purpose of mission. <coughs> Excuse me. Alright, and so, listen. If this is the case, if this is kind of where you are, there's, maybe there's some of you in the room this morning who lack boldness in your witness. What do you say that's me may not raise your hand right once again, remember i told you my new year's resolution to work on the responsiveness of our congregation you like boldness in your witness with friends or family maybe there's some in the room this morning who's like there are areas of my life in which i just cannot seem to put sin to death there are things that continue to rear its head over and over and over again and i continue to submit myself to my fleshly passions it could be because you're functioning as spiritually Amish people. Not, not fully, fully tapping into the resources that God has given you. So listen, if you know not that power in your life, maybe, you, maybe you've got your mind filled with all kinds of knowledge, but you don't have that power in your life. There's one thing that I want to say to you, this, actually two, but the first one is this. The first one is this. For some of us in the room, what we need to begin to do is stop stifling the Spirit. Stop suppressing the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul commands the Thessalonians 
He says it very explicitly, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. That word, literally, that word quench literally means extinguish or stifle or suppress, right? Lots of commercial structures that are over a certain size of square footage, they have fire suppression systems in them, like this building right here, right? So that if there was a fire that were to break out in this building, sprinklers would pop down out of those, see those little holes in the ceiling that are not lights? Uh, they would pop down out of there and water would begin to spread out across here and it would begin to extinguish whatever fire had begun to erupt here in enough time for the fire department to get here to, ex- to, to fully put it out. It's a fire suppression system, right? Or if, you, or if you, those of you who are gun people, right? I know there's some of you in here, right? That you put a suppressor on the end of a rifle or put a suppressor on the end of a pistol to quiet it to silence it, right? And there, what Paul is talking about here when he says, do not quench the spirit, he's saying, don't suppress it. Don't quiet his voice in your life, right? Quit turning on the sprinkler system every time you feel him calling you or urging you. <coughs> and so what, is it, what does that look like then practically, right? Let me read the context of that text for you. Listen to what he says. If you back up in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, We ask you, brothers, in verse 12, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So what does Paul mean by not quenching the Spirit? Look at the commands that he gives us there in that text. Leading up to... When he's making the statement of not quenching the Spirit. He says, respect those who labor over you. As they admonish you, as they teach you. Listen, you might say, this sounds a little self-serving. Maybe it is. But listen, is there a respect for church leadership that's been ordained and recognized in your life? If there's not, and you're seeking to undercut or manipulate, to kind of move around and go in a different direction, you're quenching the Spirit. Look at what else he says. We, uh, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Is there somebody idle in your life that just kind of has it set on cruise control in their Christian life? You're not making any progress not seeking to love God, you're not loving His people, you're not engaged and connected in a local church. And God, through the Holy Spirit, is prompting you to admonish them, to engage them. Are you suppressing that prompting of the Holy Spirit to engage those who are idle, to admonish them, to engage those who are weak and faint-hearted, to encourage them? Is there a silencer on the Spirit's voice in your life, quieting it so that you're not encouraging those who are weak? Is there a suppression of the Spirit's voice in your life as He's prompting you to be patient with people that you're not naturally patient with? 
Be patient with them all. Are you suppressing the voice of the Spirit in your life and His promptings whenever He is leading you to forgive those who have wronged you rather than repaying them evil for evil? And you're suppressing His voice by plotting revenge. Maybe not on your computer with a scaled out plan, but in your mind, you think, if they could just get what's coming to them. He says, avoid all kinds of evil, every form of evil. Are you giving yourself over to fleshly indulgences as the Spirit's prompting you? If so, you're quenching the voice of the Spirit in your life. Listen, let me get real practical with you this morning. You can quench the Spirit's work in your life for renewal personally, and you can quench the Spirit's work in your life for mission. Let me give you an illustration of each. <clears throat> Some of you have heard me share a little bit of my testimony before and how there were seasons in my life. From, from, early, from early, early on, as I emerged into my teenage years, went through the whole puberty thing, the cracking, my voice kind of sounded like it does this morning, all crackly, right? But I be, like hormones began to rage, and I was quickly addicted to pornography. And that addiction haunted me for years of my life. Years and years and years and years. It affected my marriage. It affected our intimacy. It affected the way that I saw women. It affected everything about, the, everything, all, all the lenses through which I viewed sex and sexuality was affected by pornography. And I can remember after becoming a Christian, I can remember there being moments in which my flesh was itching and I wanted, I was being tempted to sin and I can remember the Holy Spirit prompting me to shut the computer, to walk out of the room and I can remember suppressing the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life and not shutting the computer and not walking out of the room. And I wonder how many of us would say the same. And for you, it may not be pornography. It may be some other sin. And as the Spirit speaks and guides you into holiness, you're suppressing His voice. You're silencing His voice in your life by continuing down this path of fleshly indulgence. Listen, those of you who have perhaps struggled with a sin that you have kept secret from everyone else, and you've heard every people get up on the stage and share testimony about how God gave them freedom from that sin whenever they brought it from the darkness into light. Do you know why? Do you know why that happened? In James, we're told that we're to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. That's in the context of James, of physical healing, but I think there's a spiritual healing that takes place in our lives as God heals our hearts. So we can remit our consciences in the likeness of Christ. But whenever you finally brought that secret sin from the darkness into the light, you were living in obedience with the word of God and no longer quenching the spirit when he says, confess to someone, confess to someone. And so the spirit I know some of you are going to be like, you've gone charismatic. Spirit was unleashed in your life in that moment. And you experienced the freedom that you never knew before. Because 
yielded his prompting and stopped silencing him and suppressing him. But you can also quote the Spirit when it comes to mission. When it comes to mission. Listen, I can remember years ago, not longer after first coming to faith in Christ, I can remember going away to college to do my studies. <coughs> this was after I'd, I'd, I'd sensed the Lord leading me into vocational ministry. Now, a little backstory: I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. wasn't discipled by my father. Well, I was, but just in an unhealthy way. But I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I, my, neither one of my parents were believers. My mom grew up in a Pentecostal church. So you're like, maybe that's where you're getting this charismatic itching from. <laughs> My dad grew up in a Catholic church. But listen, whenever they got together, they were both out of the church, and they, there's been no evidence of fruit in their life, of knowing God. And so listen, I remember coming home from college on multiple occasions and suppressing the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life as he was urging me to share my faith with my mother and father. And I can remember feeling this, my, my, my pulse rapiding, rap, rapiding, that's not a word, is it? I can feel my pulse speeding up, right, as we sat on the breezeway and swung and talked about school, talked about how their life was going. And I can remember silencing the voice of the Holy Spirit and not leaning into that and having that conversation. Until finally one day, I remember being, going home for a break, I was going home, wisdom teeth removed, right? And I talking to our campus minister there on the, the college campus I was at and he was like the chaplain of the, of the campus and saying pray for me I feel like I need to go home and share the gospel with my family so he prayed for me and I, as I went home I can remember right, I was like I gotta do this before I take out my wisdom teeth and I'm in the, in the recliner on pain meds and can't talk for three days and so I sat down on the breezeway I had that same nervous pit in the bottom of my stomach but I said listen there's something I want to talk to you guys about and God, in, in, in that moment, I felt this freedom to share with them as I was no longer suppressing the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I shared the gospel with them. And I wish I could say to you that we all got down on our knees and prayed and they received Jesus. But that didn't happen then and it hasn't happened yet. So I pray for them. Maybe there's somebody like that in your life. Somebody you've sensed God burdening you to share with and you've been silencing the voice of the Holy Spirit rather than believing that whenever He is prompting you to do that, He will empower you for it. Listen, church, if you don't know of this power that the Scriptures speak of, it could be that you've suppressed the voice of the Spirit. And I'm going to close with this. And it's going, to be a, it's going to be rapid fire, okay? Because we're out of time. How is it that you might quench the Spirit? Listen, one of the, let me give you several ways. One, you might quench the Spirit. Or why is it that you might quench the Spirit? You might quench the, the Spirit's work by your fear of His extraordinary workings. Listen, this Holy Spirit, to be, make no mistake about it, there are ordinary workings of the Holy Spirit that are going on in our lives, day after day after day after day after day. Empowering us to love God, serve God. But there are times in our lives in which the Holy Spirit works in extraordinary ways during certain seasons of our life. 
And I, my, my concern is that maybe for some of us, we are afraid of his extraordinary workings because we're concerned about maybe the excess we've seen in other contexts, right? We're concerned about excess. But listen, the scriptures do not warn us about excess. They warn us about absence and scarcity. And even when Paul does warn the Corinthians about excess, he doesn't say, stop practicing gifts. He says, learn to love each other in the way that you exercise those gifts. So listen, it may be fear of, of extraordinary workings of the Spirit. You might quench the Spirit out of fear of man in your life. Suppress his voice because the voice of others and your reputation is louder in your head and your heart than the voice of the Spirit. You might have a fear of people so you don't admonish the idle. You don't encourage the weak. You don't witness to those that God is prompting you to share with. You might quench the Spirit as well by failing to pray. By failing to cultivate a prayer life with God in which you are desperate and dependent upon Him day after day after day. So if that's you, listen. Here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Yield to the Spirit's control. When Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit, what he's saying is this, don't be controlled by anything else other than the Holy Spirit who's come to dwell within you. Let that be the controlling factor of your life as you yield to His promptings, as you yield to His conviction, as He empowers you for ministry, as He brings about renewal in your life. Yield to Him. Listen, a yield sign out on the highway is not a sign that's placed to tell you to f- put the pedal to the floor and cut off the person coming in the other lane of traffic. It's not why it's there. Why is it there? It's there to tell you to yield the right of way to the person coming beside you. Let them go ahead and lead. And that's what I would say to you this morning, church. In the same way that the incarnate Son of God yielded to the, pre- the power of the Holy Spirit in His life. Give the right of way to the Spirit in yours. Let's pray together. Father, today, we, th- we thank you for <coughs> the fulfillment of your promise that your Spirit would come be poured out so that we might not only know about you, but we might know you. We might know you personally through your Son, by your Spirit. That we might experience intimacy with the God who created the heavens and the earth and ordered all of creation through the historic man, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit that you've poured out upon the young and the old, upon man, woman, and child. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room this morning, if they have been quenching the Spirit, suppressing and silencing His voice in their life, rather than yielding to His promptings as He convicts of sin, as He leads them into truth, He prompts them to share the gospel, to be, have boldness in their witness. 
Father, I pray this morning that they would yield to your spirit. And as they do, they would know freedom. They would know freedom and joy. Perhaps freedom and joy that's been bottled up in their life for so long as they've suppressed and silenced his voice. I pray they would know more renewal in 2019 than they did in 2018 because they're not quenching your spirit. I pray they'd be more effective in the sharing of the gospel and the shaping of disciples in 2019 than they were in 2018 because they're not suppressing and silencing the voice of your spirit. And that we as a church, that we would test everything in accordance with your word, that we would not be afraid of your extraordinary workings. We ask it in Jesus' name.